1: Welcome to the Lovejoy Hour, sponsored by those lovely people at Cooker. 100 degree boiling hot water straight from your kitchen tap. I say lovely people not only because they sponsor the podcast, but because they're a modern thinking company. They look after their staff and they look after their customers too. They certainly fit with my values. I hope I fit with their values also. Um, if you can afford one, I recommend it. My friend who had one installed a couple of months ago texted the other day to confirm that his kettle was going. I think I kept mine for uh, my kettle for a good six months, I reckon. (laughs) It's just one of those things you're so used to that you think, oh, I better keep it just in case. But I've not seen a kettle in my house for years now. For details, go to cooker.co.uk and you can see the range there um, as well. Right. So today's hour is a big one. I'm curious about how we're losing our lives to tech. It's huge because we are. Well, I am. I think you are too, but we'll we'll find out. I realised the other day that I'm in a pretty privileged position, aren't I? I get to read so many great books, learn so much about life, get to interview these fantastic people who have um, done research and, and, you know, really looked at the way we are living at the moment. And I thoroughly enjoy it. I hope you lot are enjoying it soon. Coming soon, actually, I have what I think... um, I think is an exciting project where I'm putting all the knowledge, wisdom um, that I'm learning from these experts, from these podcasts. I'm going to put it all in one place uh, so you can read it. And so you can discuss it hopefully with me and we can ask more questions. We can navigate uh, through our lives. I hope you think that's a good idea because I do. I keep looking back at some of my old podcasts thinking, Christ, I've forgotten all about that. And, you know, it's, it's hard to keep, to keep on top of it all, but some really good stuff. Anyway, this this podcast is going to be brilliant. Um, uh, I have a serious mobile phone addiction. I have a tech addiction. I have a Netflix addiction. I, I mean, all this stuff comes at me, and I'm an absolute mess with it all I know. And I've known it for ages. I've talked about it a lot. I've talked about it on here. I've talked about it on my TV show. I think everyone just laughs at me and goes, oh, what's he talking about? But I genuinely know it's a problem, and my life, my life is is worse for it, but I can't work out a way to navigate through a life without having it. And I've tried. Oh my god, I've tried, but I can't. Uh, Johan Hari has written a book called Stolen Focus, Stolen Focus, which is all about this and just how we lack attention. i think it's bad for us? You you want to look at our kids, and I and I've seen that in my kids as well. It's it's really it's oh, we're in a bad place. And Johan knows all about this and he's written a book about it johan Hari is a journalist but i don't know what i'd describe him as more of an anthropologist really modern sort of the cultural anthropologist social anthropologist anyway he's written two excellent books one on depression one on drugs um they're, they're the ones that i have read and and love um they're great books and i recommend them both uh, this one is is fantastic too couldn't put him down let's meet him and uh, find out how our lives are all broken it's johan Hari. Uh, Johan, thank you very much for joining me today. How are you?
2: I am good. I'm somewhat tired. I've been in in Las Vegas because I've been doing a lot of research for a future book there. And I was just saying before we went on air, Vegas is a really weird place to spend a pandemic. I mean, it's a weird place to spend any amount of time. but It's a particularly weird place to spend a pandemic because you're surrounded by people whose response to a global pandemic is to say, Let's go to Vegas. <laughs> so, right. uh, so it's been a bit weird, but but good, good, really happy, really excited to talk about a book. Thrilled to be back with you. I'm gutted we're not doing this in person, but sadly, the prospect of imminent death has kept us apart.
1: <laughs> yeah, I I, I I absolutely love your book because it's really hit on something that I've been discussing a lot, and I've been discussing it for a few years now, three or four years, and I noticed it um, uh, the the lack of attention happened I'll, I'll just tell you a quick quick couple of things which happened to oh, me because then you can see where i got to and then we can discuss it but i had a back operation and i was told that i had to lie basically pretty much not do much for two weeks and i noticed by the time i got to the end of the two weeks that i'd actually worked up a blister on my little finger because I just kept my phone swiping and swiping and swiping and swiping. I'd got so bored of Netflix. I'd got so bored of everything that I'd I'd literally exhausted myself. Hmm. And and then the next thing is I, I did a psilocybin trial uh uh for the imperial at uh, the imperial college i just put myself on it you know it wasn't oh, I was on tv or anything i just heard about it and i'd heard about psilocybin which is magic mushrooms for anyone who doesn't know and, and they gave me two doses and i didn't know what they were the first dose was a micro dose the second dose was a macro dose and on the micro dose i just got really bored and i sat there for five hours just kind of really bored but what it did do is it made me realize for, it, was, it was it was so enlightening because i realized that we don't show anything attention anymore and i've got two teenage daughters who are 19 and when they went to university i wrote one of them a card which said if you value something show it attention because it really i realized that i have no attention span anymore and this is what's happened in the modern world i pick up your book to read and i go wow you're writing about something that i know i'm addicted and i can't break it so tell me why how you got involved in it how is your attention at the moment
2: yeah, that's such an, and there's so many interesting things in what you just said, Tim. I'm just thinking about them because like you, for a long time, I had this sort of ambient sense that something was wrong, right? And, you know, and I would come across small studies when I was thinking, should I look at this? and there were suggestive small studies you know one study of american college students found that the average amount of time they focus on any task is 65 seconds and a different study found the average office worker now focuses on any one task for 3 minutes and i would think jesus that's your life dissolving into a sort of hailstorm of 3 minute chunks right and i felt like i could i could i felt like i could see it happening all around me see it happening to myself but there was this moment for me when I thought oh, you know I, I'm gonna have to do a really in-depth investigation of this it was um it's quite a personal thing so I've got a godson that uh, I'm gonna call him Adam that's not his real name because I don't want to use his real name and, and when he was nine he developed this brief but really freakishly intense obsession with Elvis Presley you know the way nine-year-olds get obsessed with things and he was constantly running around singing Viva Las Vegas and Suspicious Minds and he didn't know that that Elvis style had become like a kind of cheesy cliches. It was actually, he thought he was being cool. It was incredibly cute. And and he kept getting me to tell him the story of Elvis's life. So I told him the story and in in passing, I mentioned obviously Elvis bought this mansion for his mother and named it Graceland, right? And one night when I was tucking him in, he looked at me very intensely and he said, Johan, will will you take me to Graceland one day? And in the way that you make promises to small children, knowing they'll forget it the next day. I was like, sure. And he's like, no, do you really promise? And I'm like, I absolutely promise. And I never thought about it again until 10 years later when lots of things had gone wrong. So he was 19 by then, he dropped out of school when he was 15. And he just seemed to be spending all his time whenever I saw him, which was a lot, just alternating between his three devices. So he had an iPad, he had a laptop and he had a phone and it's like his life had become a blur of whatsapp and youtube and porn and it was like nothing could get any traction in his mind it was like his head was whirring at the speed of snapchat right um, and he was a lot he's a lovely person but you could really feel like there was something profoundly wrong and in that decade in which he had become a man he was at the extreme end of it but i had seen this happen to so many people and i'd felt those pressures bearing on myself every time I met with I'm 42 now every time I met with people my own age we'd sort of often we'd sort of lament our vanishing ability to pay attention like it was a sort of sailor who'd been lost at sea and not seen since right so one afternoon I was sitting on this sofa with him and he was just scrolling and scrolling and scrolling I was trying to talk to him and I just couldn't get any any kind of conversation going that lasted more than a, a minute and I suddenly remembered this moment when he'd been a little boy and I said you know what we need to break this routine, let's go to Graceland. And he was like, he didn't even remember this Elvis obsession, right? I was like, no, no, we're going to go to Graceland. I'll take you, let's go all over the American South. But you've got to promise one thing to me, which is that when we go, you'll leave your phone in the hotel during the day suit, because I can't take you around if you're going to just be, you know, on your phone the whole time. And he made this promise. And a couple of weeks later, we took off from Heathrow and we went initially to New Orleans, but. So when we got to Graceland, when you arrive at the gates of Graceland now, um, there isn't a guide to show you around. They hand you an iPad and you put in ear, ear, um, ear, earphones and uh, the, the iPad sort of shows you around. So it says, you know, go left, go right. And in every room you're in, it shows you that room on the iPad and it explains interesting things about that room. So what happens is people walk around Graceland just staring at an iPad, right? And I'm sort of walking around and everyone's sort of just looking down at their iPad and I'm getting a little bit tense and irritated. And I keep trying to make eye contact with people to go, oh, you know, we're the ones who traveled 3000 miles and actually looked at the thing in front of us, right? And there was one person who made eye contact with me and I was about to say it. And then I realized he'd only taken out the headphones and looked away from the iPad to take out his phone and take a selfie. Anyway, we get to the jungle room which was Elvis's favorite room in in the mansion.
1: I've been, I've been, little. I've been there. It's 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 amazing, isn't it? It's it's very green. And, it's very
2: green and kind of quite sad. There's these sort of sagging plastic yeah. plants, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. But um, yeah. Johan, can I just say if you're you're, you're getting a bit too, your mic's popping. Can you just? Oh, I'm, oh, I'm sorry.
2: Am I just too close to it? Yeah. Yeah, right. just a bit too close. Do you want me to set yeah. again? Or no, no, no. It's all great. Right. But yeah. No. Um, we we got to the jungle room and there was this couple standing next to me. I think they we're Canadian. And the husband turned to his wife and he said, hey honey, this is amazing. Look, if you swipe left, you can see the jungle room to the left. <laughs> and if you swipe right, you can see the jungle room to the right. So she starts swiping left and right. And I, and I look at this guy and I said to him, but sir, there's an old fashioned form of swiping you could do. You could just turn your head because we're actually in the jungle room. You, you don't have to look at a digital representation of it we're actually there. Do you understand? We're in the jungle room. And entirely understandably, these people clearly thought I was a mad person and just sort of backed out of the room. And I turned to my godson to sort of laugh about how crazy this was. And he was just in a corner looking at Snapchat because from the minute we arrived, he had just been constantly on his phone. And I really snapped at him and I just said, you know, you're afraid of missing out, but you're this behavior is guaranteeing you miss out. You're not seeing the things that are right in front of you are never present. And I sort of, I think I shouted anyway, he stormed off and I spent the rest of the day wandering around Memphis on my own. And then that night I found it, we were staying in the heartbreak hotel, which is just down the street from Graceland. And I found him by the swimming pool, which is shaped like a guitar where they constantly play suspicious minds in a loop. And he was just sitting there looking at his phone. and, And I went up to him and I apologized. I could see that a lot of my anger towards him was actually anger at these trends in myself and he just looked at his phone and he said I know something's wrong but I don't know what it is and that was when I thought right I need to look into this so as you know for the book I ended up traveling all over the world, from Moscow to Miami, from um, a favela in Rio de Janeiro where attention had collapsed in a particularly terrible way, to a a town in New Zealand where they'd found a really interesting way to restore attention. And I interviewed the the leading experts in the world about attention to try to understand what is happening to us and how do we put it right?
1: Yeah, um, interesting you should say that I... I... I went to a concert, um, sorry, not a concert, I went to a um, basketball game and it was the NBA in the uh, 02. And uh, sitting in front of me were Little Mix and their boyfriends at the time. This is a few years ago. And I was second row. I had the best seats, honestly, but they were front row. And them and their boyfriends, well, especially their boyfriends or the guys they're with, I don't know if they're boyfriends or not, I don't really know the, the ins and outs of gossip a Little Mix, but they watched, <laughs> they watched the whole of the basketball game through their mobile phones and it made me furious. I was so angry that they had these tickets and yet they were filming the whole thing. And then I realised that the reason why I was angry is because I'd walked in there and thought, Where's my selfie moment? Where's the bit that I can Mm. put on Instagram and Twitter? And I was frustrated by that. So that night I went, right, I'm not gonna do it. I'm just not gonna say that I'm here but i broke my contract with the people who got me tickets to go because they want me to say i'm there because that's the nba what well, they gave me free tickets so i could so i was in this real dilemma about what to do and eventually i said no i'm not doing that and i realized another stage in my life i realized i've been swept up into this thing where every time i go anywhere i think i need to take a picture of it i need to get i, I you know i need to somehow remember this via a digital thing which I'll never look at again <laughs> or, or it g- g- gains me brownie points and and just just to add to this it was it's interesting I interviewed Simon on the other day who did the documentary about um Oasis supersonic mm. and he said he re- he said the most astonishing thing about the networth gigs which that's what it's all about
2: Yeah, Is I was that- there weirdly right <laughs> when I was Brilliant. 16
1: well, you will remember, no one had mobile phones in yeah. filming it. And it was nobody. All you can see is people were actually there experiencing it. And it might be the last event that anybody actually experienced with their own eyes and ears rather than through a phone.
2: That's so interesting because, I mean, there's so many things in what you just said, and, and I've seen that everywhere. But speaking to all these experts and and studying the their scientific findings, what I learned is there's, there's actually... 12 factors that boost or degrade attention and lots of those 12 are rising and rising and rising um, uh, throughout you know at the moment and have been rising for several years and I'll give you an example of one that I think is playing out in that dynamic there's lots of reasons why in that dynamic at that NBA game you're that pisses you off right it's people not being present, it's being jolted into sort of thinking egotistically, how do I make other people jealous that I'm here? But, but also there's, a, there's a, a factor in attention that's playing out there that is, is really important. I went to MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and I interviewed one of the leading neuroscientists in the world, the name, a man named Professor Earl Miller. And he said to me, one of the most important things you've got to understand about the human brain is that you can only ever think about one thing at a time consciously. This is just an absolutely basic human limitation. The human brain has not changed significantly for 40,000 years. It ain't gonna change anytime soon. But what's happened is we've convinced ourselves that we can think about many things at the same time. In fact, the average uh, teenager now believes they can follow seven forms of media at the same time. But what happens when you're trying to do more than one thing at once, Is your consciousness papers over this, you you, you think you're just doing them all at the same time, but actually you're juggling, you're rapidly switching between lots of different tasks. And so scientists have studied this, they get people in labs and they get them to do lots of things to see what happens to you when you do that. And it turns out there's these four quite big effects that take place when you do that. The first is what's called a switch cost effect. So let's say I'm talking to you now, I've deliberately put my phone right the other side of the room, but if I hadn't, um, let's say I just glanced at my text messages now, right? And you can imagine I could glance at them for two seconds and glance back at you while you were just explaining. You know, you can imagine that's perfectly possible. Um, And I could kid myself, oh, that just took me two seconds. But then there's a a cost when I'm looking back at you and I'm like, wait, what did Tim just ask me? What's he talking about again? That's called the switch cost effect, right? You've got to reorient your brain again and again. Now imagine I could switch from you to going, oh, I suddenly look at my Facebook updates. What, what was that saying? And, then I, and I've got the television on in the background. So you're jamming up your brain with this switching, which is a really significant effect. I'll tell you how much in a minute, even what seems very small has a huge effect. The second is what's called a screw up effect. where basically if I do that, say I'm doing my tax return and I'm also checking my text, I start to make mistakes and I have to go back and correct my mistakes, right? The third effect is on your memory. To translate your experiences into memories, your brain needs a certain amount of space. And if your brain is jammed up with all this switching, it can't do that. It can't, um, it can't translate things into memories. It's why when you're distracted, you will remember much less of what you experience. And the fourth effect is on your creativity. In when your brain is working normally and you have a bit of spare time, brain will think back over the things it's experienced things people have said to you things you've read and it will combine them in interesting ways right that's where creativity comes from just letting your mind wander and having creative associations when you're jammed up with switching all the time that massively um, is reduced creativity falls and these sound like small effects but it was really striking looking at the science to see actually how big that effect of just a little bit of switching is there was a study by Hewlett-Packard, the company that made printers, and they got a small study, but they got um, their workers and split them into two groups. One group was told, just do whatever your task is, and you're not gonna be interrupted. And the second task was told, do your task, but they were interrupted with quite a heavy amount of texting and email, not an insane amount, you know, but a heavy amount. And then their IQ was measured. So the people who hadn't been distracted were t- tested with 10 IQ points higher than the people who were, who were being distracted. To give you a sense of how big that is, if you or me got stoned now, if we just sat together and smoked a spliff, our IQ and attention would diminish by about five IQ points. So being distracted is twice as bad for your IQ, at least in the short term, as getting stoned. You'd be better off sitting at your desk, smoking a spliff and doing only one thing at a time, than sitting at your desk, not getting stoned and being constantly distracted. There was another study at Carnegie Mellon University where they split the student, they took 138 students and they just split them into two groups. And one group was told, do an exam in normal exam conditions. And the other group was told, do the same exam, but you can receive text messages if you want. And you'd expect that second group to do better because they could have easily cheated, right? They could just text someone and ask the answers. In fact, the group that um, was getting texts did on average 20% worse, right? Now we're all losing that 20% Uh, or most of us are losing that 20% of bandwidth by being constantly distracted. So you think about even something like an NBA game, which is very pleasurable to watch. If you're flicking between devices, if you're flicking, you're you're losing a significant amount of your brain power, right? That process of switching diminishes your ability to follow what's happening, to think about what's happening, to remember what's happening, to think creatively about what you're seeing. It's diminishing your ability to think. And we're really, as um, Professor Miller put it to me, we live in a perfect storm of cognitive degradation as a result of all this switching and being jammed up. Does that ring true to you, Tim?
1: Yeah, a hundred percent. You know, uh, when I when I when I was a smoker years ago, I've not smoked for twenty years now. But when I smoked years ago, I remember looking at the. The, the nicotine on my fingers you know the stain you get and you pretend you you, pre, you pretend you're not ever a smoker aren't you but you look at your fingers and go <laughs> what the hell and then you start cough, <laughs> coughing up phlegm and you know my uh, at the time because I was a smoker my solution to that was wash my hands you know I was like oh scrub your hands scrub your hands you know r- realizing that but with with this addiction I have what you talk about the the attention thing but also it's quite I find it's quite painful in my life and I think you articulate this in your book because I get caught in this um, sort of rumination really of attention I'm, I don't know if that's the right words to do it but just I get caught in this cycle where I'm like check 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 just go back to Twitter get back to Twitter. and I know I get there uh, what's on Netflix what's this what's that and and eventually I get to the stage, it's sort of, I don't know, 11 o'clock at night, and I'm going, just check some more, just check some more, just check, 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 and I feel myself doing it, This, and I think I look at my children, and they can be up to, I mean, they're teenagers, and they're off to university now, but when they were living here, they could sometimes be sitting there all through the night, because they're just checking one more time, What we're addicted, aren't we, it's like one more drink. It's when you're drunk, that's my analogy I always give. Once you have four or five drinks, you might as well have 15. Because you just keep going back, going I want one more, one more, one more, more. And then they go closing time and you panic, you're in anxiety. And, and that is what it seems to create in me. And it must be creating that in a lot of people and especially our children.
2: I think you're totally right. And one of the biggest shifts that happened for me when I was interviewing all these experts and learning really deeply about attention and attention problems I think we've been thinking about this deeply wrongly. So when when I felt my own attention atrophy, like you're describing, I would criticize myself. I would go into a sort of spiral of feeling ashamed. I'd say, oh, you're weak, you're lazy, you're not strong enough, uh, this is on you. But actually what I learned is if you look at these 12 causes, our attention didn't collapse. Our attention has been stolen from us. It's been stolen from us by very big forces that go much deeper than just a personal failing or even just one new invention, like the smartphone or the internet. There are really deep causes doing this to us. Now, once you understand those causes, there are things you can do as an isolated individual, but we've also got to take on those forces that are fucking up our attention and fight back against them and restrain them. And there's been lots of examples of that in the past. Think about lead paint and leaded petrol, right? So in the from the 1920s to the 1970s, lots of people painted their homes with le- paint that had lead in it, and petrol mostly had lead in it, right? And then it was discovered that lead really destroys people's ability to pay attention, profoundly harms it. It's one of the reasons why there was such a big rise in ADHD. It's one of the reasons why there was actually um, a big rise in violence, because exposure to lead makes people more violent. So what did we do? we banned lead, right? We banned lead in petrol and we banned lead in paint. And as a result, um, that aspect of attention, you know, a lot of people, their attention improved. The Center for Disease Control in the US said that that ban alone led to an average of a five-point IQ increase in American children on average throughout the whole country. Um, Now, there are lots of things that are the equivalent of lead in petrol, right? We've got to deal with those things. We've got to get them out of our environment. And there's that can sound really big, but there's a huge number of really practical ways we can do that, in addition to lots of things we can do as individuals on our own. And I think we need to think very differently. But the other thing I was thinking as you were saying that about your your kids as well, is even just think about sleep, right? So you're talking about, you know, your kids not sleeping. So on average, so the average child now sleeps. 80 minutes less than they did a century ago. And the average adult now sleeps an hour less than they did in 1942. And I interviewed the leading experts in the world on sleep. And even if nothing else had changed, and lots of other things have changed, but even if that was the only change that had happened, that alone would be causing a really big attention crisis. Because sleep is essential for your ability to think clearly and pay attention. There's a Uh, amazing expert at Harvard Medical School, who I interviewed, Dr. Charles Seisler, who made a whole series of breakthroughs on sleep. But one of the most striking for me was he developed this technique. It was putting together two bits of technology where you can put someone into this this machine and it tracks what they're looking at with their eyes and also tracks what's happening in their brain. And what he discovered is when you're tired, and you don't have to be that tired when you've been awake for 19 hours, what happens is parts of your brain begin to go to sleep. So he discovered this really eerie phenomenon where someone appears to be awake, they're talking, their eyes are open, they look perfectly normal, but literally parts of their brain are asleep, right? It's called local sleep because it's local to one part of the brain. This is, this is um, yeah, I can say loads about that. But so, yeah, you're pointing at loads of things I, need to, I think we need to think about deeply.
1: Yeah, um, I think the thing we've got to describe at this point um, is that, and which I like, is it's, it's not our fault. And there's nothing wrong with us, really. I think that's what you're trying to say there, which I love that that bit we get to in your book, because because we are told constantly we're crap, right? There's so many self-help books out there which are constantly telling you this is how they made it, this is how they did it. You're not quite good enough, and it's like oh, I'll get up at five o'clock every day if I can get a, become a millionaire. You know, it just it just it doesn't work. But on this one, I think what what we what you 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 talk about well in the book is the fact that. They're using magic tricks, even you use that that sort of um expression there to try and trap us because the mechanism is the more you watch your screens the more money they're making that's the dynamic that's that's how how it works i think a really good example of that i think is um i keep saying this to my friends you've all become addicted to netflix Like we all used to sit and watch football it lasts 90 minutes bit before bit afterwards and then we'd go off and do something else but netflix they keep at the end of every episode they said they let you watch the next one don't they it starts rolling before the titles are finished um but that is the that is your thing on the on the, on the screen isn't it on your phones on your computer there's no end to it so you keep going and going and going
2: there's two bits of what you just said that are so important so the first bit is about the ways in which the sort of self-help industry or the whole way we talk to and about each other and uh, makes these problems worse so there's this concept called cruel optimism it was done, invented by an um, american historian called lauren berlant and cruel optimism is where you take something that's got a really big cause in the way we live, like obesity, depression, attention problems. And you say to people, great news, I've got a solution for you. Got attention problems? Just do these two little things every day, meditate for 10 minutes, do the following few things, and all this problem will go away, right? Now it sounds kind, it sounds optimistic, right? You're saying, you're identifying the person's who got a problem and you're saying you've got power and agency to deal with this. But the problem is because the solution you offer is so small. For the sometimes it will work, but for the vast majority of people it will fail. And then the person will think, "Well, I did the thing you're meant to do, but it didn't work. There must be something wrong with me. I haven't got the willpower to do it. I haven't got the strength to do it. I'm just or I'm just broken in some way, right? So it seems kind, but actually ends up whispering to the person, "The problem is in you. The problem isn't in the system. The problem's with you." Now, the alternative to cruel optimism isn't pessimism. We don't want people to be pessimistic and they don't need to be. The, the solution is authentic optimism, which is where you acknowledge the scale of the problem, you acknowledge the real causes of the problem, and you find ways for all of us together to deal with that. So I'll give you a very um, simple example and then I'm really keen to talk about the aspect that you talked about with the internet. So think about what we, to give one example, think what we were just talking about switching and right the switch cost effect, right? And loads of people listening will will identify that. They'll be like, yeah, I do that. I can feel that that screws up my attention. And then someone like me, or, you know, kind of more uh, kind of someone in the self-help industry comes along and goes, well, there you go. The solution is stop switching, right? But lots of people, um, it's incredible the statistics on this, of people feel they can never unplug because they're constantly waiting for their boss to email them or phone them. And they have to be on call. When you and me were kids, the only people who lived on call were doctors and the prime minister, right? Now, half the economy lives on call. So me coming along going, you know, switching's really bad for you. You might want to sleep more. To them, it will feel like entirely justifiably, it's like I've gone up to a homeless person and gone do you know what would make you feel better, mate, would be if you went over there into the Ritz and had a really nice dinner, I think you'd feel better (laughs) then. And you might go, well, yeah, you fucker. (laughs) It would. (laughs) I can't do that, right? So very often, there's lots of things that we don't know are harming our attention that we need to learn about. But very often, there's there's things that people know harm their attention. And we live in a gap between what people want to do and what they feel they can do. So we have to look at ways we can close that gap. And there are lots of practical ways to do that. And I've seen them in practice. I'll just very quickly give an example of one, which is in France, they had a big problem with what they called le burnout, which I don't think I need to translate. Um, and, um, and it was a lot of it was being caused by people who felt they could never unplug, right? They're constantly on call. So the French government uh, got a guy called Bruno Metling, who's the head of Orange, the biggest telecom company, to look into this. And he proposed and they put into law, a very simple law It's called the right to disconnect. And the right to disconnect, very simple, just says you by law have a right to have written work hours that are stipulated and you have a right that outside those work hours, you do not have to respond to emails or work phone calls. So I went to Paris to learn more about this. You know, Rent-A-Kill got fined 70,000 euros because they told off one of their workers for not answering an email an hour after, you know, he'd left work, right? So you can see how that frees, there's no point giving people sweet self-help lectures about the benefits of sleeping more, giving up switching a lot of the other things we're going to talk about if you don't also give people practical ways they can actually do that in the world in which in which we live you've got to do both there's individual changes but together we can fight for these bigger collective changes that make it possible for us to do the individual changes to the degree that we need to do you see what i mean
1: yeah i mean yeah i I, i'm reading your book i loved it you start off with um Uh, Going on a detox. And and actually, I remember you tweeting. Actually, I'll see you in six months or something. I was thinking, and I just remember thinking, are you lucky? bastard you've actually got (laughs) control to do that you can do that um actually before i get on to this next point how do you feel about i i say to my friends all the time once i get chucked out of tv which will happen one day i'm turning it all off because i want to live and i don't want this crap in my mind but i feel being on tv that it's impossible for me not to be connected today because i was seeing you or interviewing you um uh, I decided not to look at the news at all. And the anxiety I have for, for oh, I don't know what time we are now, uh, 1. 45 in the afternoon. You know, I've been up since seven. I've not looked at any news and I feel anxious about that. You report this in your in your findings when you went on detox, didn't you? It's really hard. Could you ever envisage being a journalist like you are, sort of, that, that you could just switch it all
2: off? No, you're totally right. When I, so... I just felt at the end of my tether with these problems so I went I decided I was going to take three months completely off the internet and completely without a smartphone so I went to this place called Provincetown which is at the tip of Cape Cod and I was there for three months and it was really striking to me uh, I mean lots of things happened when I was in Provincetown but you're absolutely right the way in which we follow the news really induces a sense of panic I also think though the thing you're describing, which is the kind of, um, I mean, the wonky way of putting it would be the dilemma of public figures in an age of distraction, is the truth is, when I tweet, which I do sometimes, I take half the year off, but I do do it sometimes, I'm communicating with people, even at the best, even when people are actually want to listen, which most of the time they don't, and even when, you know, um, all the kind of everything, the wind is behind you and everything is going well, communicating with people in an incredibly shallow way and also through a medium that's designed to make people angry we can we'll talk about that i'm sure in a minute um whereas with a book if i go away and write a book you know i spend three years researching a book i learn all these things and then if someone reads my book what they're doing is they're engaging really deeply with me and with this journey i've gone on and with the things i've found out and the difference between a life that consists of loads of very shallow communications. It's like it's like being at a Slipknot concert and shouting at the person next to you versus a really... I mean, if Twitter is like being at a Slipknot concert and people shouting at you, reading a book is like going on holiday with someone. If someone reads my book, it's going to take them like, I don't know, the medium length reader, maybe eight hours to read my book, right? That's a long time to spend in my company. So I just think when I get to the end of my life, do I want to have spent my life shouting at people at heavy metal concerts no disrespect to Slipknot who I think are quite good or do I want to have gone on lots of holidays with people and had really deep thoughtful conversations with them and for me and I totally understand again there's a bit of cruel optimism in this because you may well be listening and thinking well you you know you fucker you can do that I can't right and lots of people can't so I'm, I'm interested in thinking about how we can change the culture so more people can do that um but I actually just think a lot of even for people who are public figures in the way that you are, actually, I think we think we need to do it, but I don't think we need to do it
0: Well, there's what there's one point in the
1: book you make and I love it and I think it's only a line and and um, uh, uh, I can't I don't I've written it down here so I don't know whether I've written it down in my version or your version but good citizens read the news and and that I find so destructive because, I've felt that for all these years. Oh, I've got to know what's going on in China and wherever, you know, uh, every continent. And I've also got to know what's going on with the, the you know, the left and the right in this country and, and what's going on everywhere. I need to know that. Otherwise I'm not a very good citizen. I need to understand everybody's everybody's problems. And yeah, it's not doing me any good at all. I can't, I can't do anything about it. You know, what is going on in the news? And, and yet I'm taking it all on constantly.
2: Yeah, that line was said to me by a professor in Denmark, and it, it, and he was warning about something that I think is comes back to what you were asking about the internet before, which is the difference between learning about the news and choosing to take action in sensible ways, which we all can do, and there are things we can all do to affect the trends that are happening around us. I mean, we can each make a small contribution, but together we can do really big things. But I think you've got to understand the difference, um, and I know you've, you're sensitive to this and have been for a long time, Tim, the difference between absorbing those things in one set of mediums versus another like facebook or twitter and to understand that it comes back to what you were saying before about the ways in which these sites are des- oh, sorry the ways in which these sites are designed so i went to interview a lot of uh, silicon valley dissidents people who have been involved in designing the world in which we now live uh, and regret it in all sorts of complicated ways and one of them, Tristan Harris, amazing guy, former design ethicist at, at Google until he quit because he realized they, they weren't interested in ethics. So there's no point being the ethicist. Um, he, he said to me, it was a moment, it was just kind of, I interviewed him loads of times, but it was one moment where I thought, oh, this is beginning to fall into place for me. So he said to, he said to me, if you open Facebook now, it'll tell you loads of things. It'll tell you, you know, your cousin just tagged you in a photo. It'll tell you... Uh, this is what you said five years ago, it'll tell you it's your nan's birthday, whatever it might be. There isn't a button that says, I'd like to meet up with people or any of my friends around nearby and want to meet up, right? Now you would think a lot of people have looked at Facebook and thought, oh, I wonder who's available now. Um, that would be a really popular button. Pretty much everyone listening to this on Facebook can think of a time they would have liked to have had that button. So why doesn't the market provide it? Why doesn't Facebook give us that button? to understand, I think if you follow the trail from that, you begin to understand what some of the ways in which our attention is being, is being destroyed. So when you open Facebook, it makes money in two ways. Obviously, if you open Facebook and scroll through it, you'll start to see advertising. And obviously the advertisers pay to be there. That's a very clear way that we're all aware of. The second method is much more important. Everything you say and do on, on Facebook, is observed, scanned, and sorted by Facebook. So if you say you like Kylie Minogue, Donald Trump, and um, you, know, you message your mum and actually the Kylie-Donald Trump Venn diagram may not be that big now I think of it, um, <laughs> and, you like, you know, and you message your, your mum saying, oh, I've just bought some nappies, then okay, it knows you like Kylie, you like Trump, and you've got a young child. Imagine thousands of data points like that. It's building up a complex profile of you as a person, And the reason it does that is to sell that information to advertisers so they can target you. So when you use Facebook, it's free because you are the product. They then sell you to advertisers. That's the whole model. Once you understand that, you begin to see why there's no button that says, let's meet up. Because the minute you put down, the minute you shut the app, the minute you put your phone down, they start to lose money. They're not getting money from the advertising and they're not getting the data on you to sell. If the button said, which of my mates are around and want to meet up, You would go and see, you go, oh, Joe wants to have a pint. I'll go and see Joe in the pub, right? You wouldn't be interacting through Facebook. You'd be actually looking at each other face-to-face, assuming not in plague times, right? Um, That's a disaster for Facebook if you do that. Every time you put the phone down, they lose money. And every time you keep scrolling, they make money. So all of their engineers, everything they do is designed To keep you scrolling. So, you have some of the cleverest people in the world developing highly sophisticated techniques, all of which are designed specifically around invading your attention. And they're very explicit about that. Sean Parker was one of the first um investors in facebook a hugely influential figure in the history of facebook said we consciously designed it to figure out how to take as much of your attention as possible we yeah. knew what we were doing and we did it anyway
1: yeah there's that guy you i can't remember it, the endless scroll what's it called he's end-
2: raskin yeah
1: what, what's this scroll called and you'll know it when you see it because in the old days of the internet you got to the end of the page and it said Do you want to go to the next page now it just keeps scrolling and
2: scrolling and scrolling and he's not happy about it is he well it's it's so fascinating so asa is um a really interesting person, Aza, Aza's dad, Jeff Raskin, was the guy who designed the Apple Macintosh. So a hugely important figure in the history of tech, and Asa was this sort of prodigy child. Uh, I think he wrote his, gave his first like lecture on coding when he was 10 or something. And when he was in his early 20s, he invented exactly that technique. So people will remember, and some websites still work this way, it used to be when you got to the bottom of a page, you know, there'd be like 10 Facebook status updates, and you'd have to click, a two at the bottom to go to the next step. And then you have to click to another one and another one. What that did is it just gave you a moment to pause and go, do I want to carry on looking at this? Or do I want to do something else? Right. And Aza invented something at the time he thought was really helpful, which is it's called infinite scroll. It's very simple. Now, when you get to the bottom of the page for something like Facebook, it'll just automatically load the next thing. Right. And it's called infinite because it will just keep going on forever. Right. You just get to the bottom and it'll load you more and more. You can never get to the bottom of it. And Aza had this moment. I mean, his own attention was being wrecked by lots of techniques like this. And he had this moment where he just sat down one day and figured out, okay, how much longer, because there's good evidence, infinite scroll makes people scroll longer. You don't get that moment of being interrupted and going, do I want to carry on doing this? So he figured out how much extra human time have I taken with my invention? And he figured out every day the equivalent of 200,000 human lives, entire lives, so every week, is taken up just with people scrolling more as a result of infinite scroll. And he's like, what have I done? And there's dozens of techniques like that, but Azer is at the real forefront of arguing for change. And, and what he argues and lots of other people who know this industry really well argue is the most important thing for us to understand is it doesn't have to work this way. You can have social media. At the moment we have social media that is maximally designed to hack your attention and destroy it and keep you scrolling. But social media doesn't have to work that way. You think again about what we're saying about lead paint. I'm in a room that's painted painted, you're in a room that's painted. We still paint things. We just don't use lead paint. In the same way, we can change the business model. So what ASA says is we should it sounds quite stark when you hear it, but then you follow the logic. Ainsa says we should just ban that business model, a business model that tracks you, surveils you in order to package you and sell your attention to the highest bidder. The way he puts it is that it's just anti-human and it's got to go, right? So you think I said to him, well, ha- and a lot of the other people, well, what happens? Okay, let's say we did that, we ban it. What happens the next day when I open Facebook or Twitter? And they said, okay, well, what would happen is those companies wouldn't vanish. They would have to find a different business model. And there are business models that everyone listening is, already has lots of experience with that are entirely, you know, that, that they could adopt easily. One, you mentioned Netflix, one could be a subscription model, right? We'd all pay 50 cents a month or whatever to be, to be on Facebook. Or there's um, uh, a model, everyone listening is somewhere near a sewer, right? Obviously, it used to be there were no sewers, we got cholera, all sorts of problems. So together we built sewers and we own those sewers together because we all have an interest in not getting cholera and not, you know, having shit in the streets, right? And um, we all own those sewers together. Maybe we want to say, just like we own the sewage pipes, maybe we want to own the information pipes together because we're getting the informational and attentional equivalent of cholera. There's all sorts of different models that we could, that we could try, ones which are already in practice. The really important thing about that is that once you move to a different business model, a whole different set of potentials open up. It's no longer designed to raid and sell your attention. It can actually be designed to help you heal your attention. That button, for example, the which of my friends are around, that would be one of the first things to appear but there would be loads of other things like that
1: I think there's a the there, there, yeah and there's a there's a big point you make in your book that that model is in existence because that is how um we uh we judge success in the world is economic growth and so you've got that situation in uh in a, a, every government at the moment is they're just trying to make as much money as they possibly can and then you've got this ridiculous scenario now where you've got Zuckerberg and Elon Musk and everyone who is just playing the game let's see how much money they can collect bill Gates, offsets his um, collecting money nonsense. By he doesn't give it back to the customer or his employees. He he's uh, he gives it to charity. So he plays God by curing malaria or whatever. And it's like, hold on, who said he could have all the world's money to cure malaria? And, <laughs> and are you sure that's the priority? Well, you know, I'm not saying it isn't. By the way, before people get angry with me, but surely is are we sure they're the priorities? Uh, you know, in in the world, who's why are they deciding? And and so we need to really rethink glo- globalization and what what we've come to and and this is a, a love a, a lovely a terrible reflection of, of what the world is like anyway and and the bit that if you if you think oh we'll just switch off stop scrolling stop doing that that the bit we haven't mentioned yet is they engage with you in a very dark way because they as humans we we want news and we want to scroll and we want things because it's a survival mechanism we need to know the bad news rather than the good news the bad news keeps you alive the good news doesn't keep you alive you know the you know that that's what happens you need to know where the snake is so you don't get pinned by the snake and so and so that's what they play into isn't it and and so so that is where it's what their angle so it's not healthy for the world
2: no, you're totally right. I think you put it really well. And there's there's a whole range of ways in which this this current business model and the way it's designed on social media fucks with your. I can swear, can't I? By the way, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Fucks with your attack. I'm too swearing. My mother's Glaswegian. I'm too sweary generally. But the um the the the, the ways in which this fucks with your attention. So one is, and you alluded to this this before, Tim. It makes you crave the reward system it sets up. Right. So you know, your guys at your NBA match, why are they doing that? Partly it's because they want people to see they're there and get a flood of likes and hearts and OMG, I'm so jealous, right? So it makes us crave those reward systems. It makes us switch tasks more. We talked about that. It learns specifically how to raid your attention. So what it does is it learns your patterns. So for me, for example, the perfect way to uh, raid my attention is to show me, you know, a clip of Noam Chomsky, a hot shirtless man, another clip of Noam Chomsky, right? (laughs) Then two hot shirtless men, right? But for you, I'm pretty sure that's going to be a different thing that's going to be the thing that distracts you, but it learns your patterns of distraction. But the most important one, or the most disturbing one, I think, is exactly the one you've gone to, which is about anger. So what the algorithm, the, 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 the machinery that decides what to show you next on Facebook, that algorithm has one goal, only one goal, keep you scrolling, right? that's its sole purpose. And what those algorithms learned is if you want to keep people scrolling, and this wasn't the intention of anyone at Facebook, it was something the algorithm picked up, is people will pay attention more and longer to things that make them angry than to things that make them feel good. And we've all had that experience. You're driving on the motorway, you pass a car crash, you stare at the car crash a lot longer than you stare at the pretty flowers on the other side of the road, Right. And you're absolutely right. The reason is a kind of simple evolution, probably a simple evolutionary reason, which is the people who, our ancestors who were vigilant to danger and stared at the potential risk longer, they're the ones who got to be our ancestors, because the ones that just stared at the pretty flowers got eaten, right? Um, That's a slightly simplistic way of putting it, but you get my point. Um, so and this this is called negativity bias. There's a lot of evidence for it. Even 10-week-old babies will stare longer at an angry face than at a smiling face. Wow. Because you know, they're trying to pick up on danger, they're trying to pick up on risk. Um, but that has a horrific effect on the internet because if you use these business models, because what that means is uh the Pew Research study, Pew Research Center did a study that showed the more words of anger and rage you put into your Facebook status updates. So if you put anger and rage in, it will double your likes and shares, right?
1: I've got um, some. I've got some of the words here from your book because I, yeah. I, I, I. What I did is I, I took a picture of the book, and now every time I'm tweeting, I'm trying to use these words to see to see what. I <laughs> so, so, this is from YouTube. The words they like is is uh, or do well is hates, obliterates, slams, destroys, and then other words you've got uh, a little bit further down is attack, bad, and blame. And they're words that, that, that go really well, you know, that, that work well if you're trying to get some likes and, or get some interaction, I suppose.
2: Exactly, because the algorithm's, algorithm will select for angry uh, messages to promote because they'll engage people more and engaged people are keep scrolling. Mm. If it's enraging, it's engaging, right? Mm. Now that has a catastrophic effect, has catastrophic effects at an individual level. Imagine your teenagers, I was speaking to a teenager about this yesterday. Two teenagers go to a party one of them goes home and says on Facebook or Snapchat, that was a really nice party. I liked everyone there. They all looked great. Another teenager goes home and goes, um, what a shit party. Caroline looked like an absolute slag. She was trying to pull my boyfriend uh, and, and Bob was, looked like an ugly pig, right? The algorithm, algorithm will select to promote the second person's messages to far more people than the first person's messages. Because if it's enraging, it's engaging, it will keep people scrolling, more people are more likely to react. We're more vigilant to nastiness than we are to, to kindness. If you see a nice message, you're more likely to put the phone down. If you see a nasty message, you're not. Now, we can see how that makes people feel like shit. It's obvious you don't need me to explain that. But we're also seeing that at a huge political level, right? It's not a coincidence, I think, that there's many things going on. This is certainly not the only factor, but that we're if you create a machinery into which we are all plugged for about an hour a day that is designed to make people angry that, and also promotes untrue things ahead of true things. And there's a study by MIT that showed that that anger doesn't vanish when we put the phone down, right? That anger becomes supercharged and supercharged. And we're seeing that all over the world. So I think we've got to deal with, there's two kinds of attention, isn't there? I mean, there's many kinds, but, there's two ways of thinking about attention. One is this individual attention, right? Your individual ability to do things. But there's also your collective attention. There's our ability as a society to pay attention to things together. And that is being absolutely destroyed at the moment. Think about something as simple as, you'll remember, but younger listeners won't, uh, the ozone layer crisis, right? So in the 1980s, it was discovered, uh, we didn't know it, but then we knew it, that in hairsprays and in fridges, there was something called CFCs, that was destroying the ozone layer, which is a layer around the planet that protects us from the heat of the sun's rays. And it was causing a hole in the ozone layer above the Arctic. And it was actually had the potential to melt the Arctic. And I remember being absolutely fucking terrified as like a seven-year-old of the ozone layer crisis. And what happened? Ordinary people heard the science. They could distinguish the science from lies. They pressured their politicians to act and they kept that pressure up on their politicians until until CFCs were banned. And now the hole in the ozone layer is healing. It will be healed fairly soon, right? So that was an amazing example of collective attention, right? We individually paid attention and together we paid attention. If the ozone layer crisis happened today, I really don't think that would happen. Firstly, I think a load of bullshit. I mean, you, the internet would be flooded with people saying the ozone layer doesn't exist. The hole in the ozone layer <laughs> I, is caused yeah. by George Soros and Jewish yeah. people and just insane racist nonsense. We, we would tribalize around it. You'd get one group of people who'd, you know, adopt some symbol that was about the ozone layer. And you would get another group of people who would take photos of themselves spraying hairspray at the sky going fuck the ozone layer. <laughs> we, would just, and we, we wouldn't, our collective capacity for attention has been absolutely trashed.
1: Do you, do you know what? It's funny? Because the example that was used on that documentary, I can't remember the name of it now, you'd, you'd probably know, is I think it was the documentary where they said women who've given birth obviously go online and they look at look at stuff to do with children and then they're fed anti-vax stuff because they know it rates well. And you're paranoid when you're a parent because you don't want your child to die and it gets you at your weakest. But it's not because there's some horrible menace out there. Well, there is the person who makes the videos, but what it is is, is they're just trying to get you to stay online, so it's exact exactly the point you're making. I wonder actually, Johan, whether um, the, we're doing this in December and I'm going to put this out in January. So this actually happened yesterday, but Jack Dorsey is resigning from Twitter. Now, if I want to start my own conspiracy theory, I wonder if Jack is thought I'm out of this because he can see what's happening. And, and we, we seem to be very good now at prosecuting people for, for their past acts. I wonder if these guys like Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey and stuff like that, they're going to be held up and we're going to be going, hold on guys, you need to do some prison time for what you created. here, Right. You know, I, I, I'm maybe, maybe jumping forward a bit, but why is Jack giving up? I suddenly st- I've i just read your book, so I started going, hold on, he's getting out <laughs> of here because, because he knows we're all going to turn on it sooner or later.
2: Uh, you know, the funny thing about these people, I, I know people who know them, is they're not evil, right? They're, they're any more than, you know, the head of KFC is evil, right? They, they've just got a business model and always the temptation, and I feel that temptation as well, is to look for the devil who did it to us, right? But the truth is, these are just people operating in systems. They're quite banal people. They're not interesting people. They're not uh, They're not even particularly intelligent, actually, when you meet a lot of these Silicon Valley people who think they're the masters of the universe. I'm not talking about the brilliant dissidents that I met who are really impressive. Um, the temptation is to see it as... Just like the temptation is to see it as a personal flaw in you, then when you discover these systemic things, the temptation is to go, oh, it's a personal flaw in them. But the truth is we've just got to regulate these systems. This is obviously only one of the 12 causes that we're talking about, but that we've we've got to deal with the systems themselves. And the truth is, you know, these are, I believe they're doing terrible harm to the world, but also we've got to be honest, we're letting them do it, right? We allow them to do this. As a society, we can regulate these companies. They'll fight like hell against it but we can regulate these companies and stop them doing these things if we choose to. And at the end of the day, once we know what they're doing to us and once we're aware of it, We have to assume a degree of responsibility, you know, and we have to change how we think. We are not medieval peasants sitting at the court of King Zuckerberg, begging for crumbs of attention from his table. We are the free citizens of democracies and we can take back our minds if we want to. And we can take on these forces that are stealing our focus. But we have to decide to do it. We have to understand where we are and we have to decide to do it.
1: Yeah. And I think we've got to say, by the way, that the internet, there's some real good stuff about it and being connected. There's some really good. Oh, there's amazing things about it.
2: And that's the really important thing. We can have a lot of the good things without these harmful things. And there's always going to be some element of greater distraction as a result of smartphones, but we can have systems of social media that are designed to heal your attention, not hack your attention. Those things are perfectly technologically easy to design. It's a question of changing the business model and I remember having, that's even good for them. One of the people I interviewed was this guy called Dr. James Williams, an amazing guy who used to be a Google engineer and now is a a professor at the University of Oxford. And um, I remember when James was still a designer, one day he sat in this tech conference with loads of people who were designing social media. And he said to them, could you put up your hand if you want to live in the world that you're designing and nobody put up their hand. Wow, These people are being hacked just like we are. I mean, there's this chilling moment Tristan Harris talks about, told me about, so he worked on the Gmail team where they were developing Gmail. And there was this moment where they had to increase their user base. And there was a moment and get the people who were using it to use it longer and more often. This moment where one of his colleagues just said, oh, I've got an idea. Why don't we make it? So that every time someone gets an email, their phone vibrates. And everyone said, oh, that's a good idea. And a couple of weeks later, Tristan was walking around San Francisco and he just hears all these vibrations and just realises that was happening all over the world. He actually figured out that his team was responsible for 11 billion interruptions to people every day. Right? Just a result of his colleague, oh, that's a good idea. Right? And the incentive structure for those colleagues. So it's better for them. I mean, Mark Zuckerberg will have less money. All right. He'll be merely one of the 50th richest people in the history of the human race, not one of the top 10. All right. He'll survive. You know, I want to send him to prison. I just want to, um, I don't even want to take away all his money. Right. I mean, I think he should be taxed, but we can have a conversation about that another time. But, but it's, it genuinely is in the interest of everyone. They may not know it's in their interests. these very rich people, but it, at some level, it can't be spiritually good for them to know that they're supercharging <laughs> hatred and racism and all sorts of things.
1: So, so your your campaign really would be, if you, if I'm going to put you in charge, I am going to put you in charge of the campaign, <laughs> right, whether you like it or not, your campaign is going to be um, ban surveillance capitalism.
2: That very specific model of invading, of tracking people in order to figure out how to maximally invade their attention and then selling that data to advertisers so they can do it. Yeah, I think we should ban that model. That's one of a series of demands, I think, some of which are not related to tech at all, which I think would provably improve our ability to focus and pay attention. I think there's good evidence for that. And I think it's really achievable. You know, I mean, it's a big fight, but we're all the beneficiaries of big fights. You know, I mean, I'm gay. Um, And for 2000 years, gay people were imprisoned, burned, killed. And then a group of gay people banded together and said, you know what? Um, we're just like you and we don't want to be treated like this anymore. And loads of people opened their hearts and changed. And now we still have some work to do, but we have overwhelmingly equality for gay people. Right. Happened. It was one way for 2000 years and then it happened really quickly. James Williams, the guy I was just talking about, said to me once, you know, the axe existed for 1.4 million years before anyone thought to put a handle on it. The internet has existed. <laughs> the internet has existed for less than ten thousand days, right? We yeah. can change these things if we want to.
1: Can I say the 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 book, the, uh, Johann's book, is so worth reading because you you learn so much about how your brain works as well via um, uh, uh, a myriad of uh, experts. One of the great bits in it, which I absolutely loved, is. When I started trying to meditate years ago, um, and I meditate a lot now, but it took me years to actually understand what I was doing. But one of the great ways of meditating is just to daydream. And I know you now go for a walk, uh, an hour's walk every day just to let let your mind wander. And it, it occurred to me, and this all occurred to me when my children started going to school, they were constantly told to sit down at a desk. And then what they were doing is they were told to concentrate, constantly concentrate. And every now and then you'd go and see a teacher and they'd say, they just don't concentrate in class. And then when you leave school and you become an adult, you're told that you have to do yoga because you spent so much of your life sitting down. (laughs) And then then you're told mindfulness because you can't, you can't daydream anymore because your brain is, totally concentrated the the thing you but the point you make in your book is daydreaming is such a beautiful thing for the brain to do to actually do nothing yet the anxiety you get by going hold on i've got an hour to just walk like you say without a phone or do something like that you go no i could be doing this instead is where you always get to isn't it with the thought i mean i don't anymore because because i'm desperately trying to break my addiction but that's what that's how i normally feel
2: you're so right this is one of the things that i found one thing that was most unexpected for me in those three months that I went away. So there's this, when we think about attention, there's been one metaphor that's really dominated how people think about attention for a hundred years, right? So if you picture the Hollywood Bowl or the O2 or something and you picture everyone coming in and there's loads of noise and bustle and everything and then Adele or whoever it is walks on stage and everyone goes quiet and there's a spotlight on Adele That is our dominant metaphor for attention. We think of attention as the spotlight. Attention is usually defined as they they say, your ability to selectively attend to things in the environment. So it's your ability to shut out everything else and focus on this one thing. And when I went away to heal my attention, I thought, oh, okay, this is great. What I'm gonna be able to do is I'm going to be able to deploy my spotlight more. I'll be able to sit in one place and read a book for like eight hours. And then I'll be able to listen to this long podcast because I've got my iPod with me, not my phone. uh, And then I'll be able to have long conversations. So I was thinking, oh, it's all going to be about the spotlight, right? And that did in fact happen. My spotlight did massively improve with some ups and downs along the way. Um, But then there was something that happened that I didn't expect and was actually even more kind of fertile for me, which is one day I decided to, I remember it really clearly. I I just, Provincetown, there's this really, well, the beach is the whole of the Cape. So you could just walk around the whole Cape if you had the time, but I would just go for these really long walks on the beach, like five hours. And I started for the first month or so, I would always take an audio book with me and I was listening to it on my iPod. (laughs) Funny, every time I turned on my headphones, I've got these noise cancelling headphones and they would always say, searching for Johan's iPhone, searching for (laughs) Johan's iPhone. And then it would go the iPhone cannot be found, and I was like, "Oh shit!" But so I go for these really long walks, and then and then I started just leaving the the iPod at home and just walking and just thinking and letting my mind just float. I was walking on the beach, and it was floating like the waves were floating. And the first a good week or so that I did this, I kept thinking, "This isn't what you came here for, right? This isn't this isn't right. You came here to focus. Why are you doing this?" But then I actually, obviously later, I interviewed the leading experts in the world about mind wandering and it was so interesting it's this amazing guy called professor marcus reichel who is an amazing neuroscientist at the washington school of medicine in um, st louis in missouri and um he made a whole series of breakthroughs about this um and it's funny because he used to get told off at school for mind wandering and daydreaming right um his teacher mr smith he used to always say that to him calling his parents and say oh your son he's got this problem he always daydreams and then he Years later, he makes these huge breakthroughs in daydreaming where he discovered that when we think we're not thinking about anything, when we're mind-wandering, in fact, your brain is just as active as when you're in spotlight focus, it's just thinking about different things. And so it's been discovered that there's lots of academics who've looked into this since, and they discovered that when you're mind-wandering, you're actually doing three really important things. Firstly, you're making sense of everything you've experienced. So if you think about when you read a book, all the people listening to this podcast, right? At one level, they've got a spotlight focus. They're listening to your words and my words. But also in the pauses, in the breaks after this, they're going to think, oh, that reminds me a bit of when I was a kid and this happened. Or "Mm, does that really match with this other thing that I know? Is he right? They're going to ruminate on it. They'll, They'll let their mind wander a bit on it. That's how we make sense of things. If you don't have the space to kind of go, oh yeah, this is like that. And that's like that. And it connects to this. And oh, is that right? And what about this? That, that mind-wandering is making sense of the world. That's not a distraction from making sense. That is making sense. The other thing we do in mind-wandering is we make connections between things we otherwise didn't see connections between. And the third is, and this is really important for feeling good about yourself, when you mind wander, you think about what's going to happen in the future. You begin to create a picture of the future. And these are all really important things. Marcus Reichel, the guy who made a breakthrough on this, remember when I interviewed him, he had just turned 80, and for years, he'd played in a symphony orchestra. He'd just given it up because of his age. And I remember him saying to me, you know, thinking is like a symphony orchestra. You need your oboes and your woodwinds. You need you need all the different kinds of instrument to play, you know, Dvorak's Ninth nice symphony or, wh- or whatever it is. But what we have now, and this, isn't, this is, I'm going further than his metaphor. He, I don't think he would approve of this metaphor, but or I don't think it would be his metaphor. But what we've got now is, we're in this disastrous situation where we're neither focusing in a spotlight way, nor are we mind wandering. We're just sort of switching and jammed up and anxious. And the metaphor I'd make is it's like, we've got a symphony orchestra, but the stage has been raided by a heavy metal band who are biting off the heads of bats and spitting it at the audience. And actually we've lost all the ability to hear the the sound, right? Not to say that heavy metal music isn't a legitimate form of sound, but you know what I mean? Mm. Um, So we need to create this space for mind wandering, mind wandering, is an essential form of focus it's a focus on making sense it's a focus on making connections and it's a focus on thinking about the future and creating a picture of the picture of the future and we've really profoundly lost that and that's one of the things i took away from this period where i was off the internet was was mm-hmm. just i've really got to build this into my life um but you know there's also something and, yeah.
1: and, and the other thing about mind wandering is that um you know you just, if you spend all your time watching Netflix and stuff, it's exciting. But the stuff which can go on in your mind is if you let it ride, uh, 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 is, is up there. Your mind is amazing if you let it just, just you know, like your dreams are amazing. You can do that in the daytime too if you let yourself daydream a lot. Johan, we've run out of time, but just finally, very, oh. very quickly, because I'll try and keep these an hour and we're way over, but have you healed
2: yourself? No. And, <laughs> uh the because that's the thing isn't it normal self-help books uh or so i don't think of mine as a self-help book i don't get offended people call it that oh book. no sorry yours is not a self-help book. yours is just absolute
1: knowledge and fantastic <laughs> knowledge and you've got to read this but if you're a parent you've got to read this book as well because there's so much about children in here as well which we haven't even touched on oh, but sadly we've run
2: out of time it's a brilliant book i haven't healed myself because for a few reasons you know the structure of self-help books is always Dear reader, I had this problem, I did this, now you can do it too, and your problem will be solved. But the truth is, I haven't solved the problem for myself, and I've made it a bit better, right? I would say I did lots of personal interventions and tweaks and changes, and I tell and I recommend them in the book. And I think they've improved my attention by about 15 to 20% on a good day, which is a lot, right? It really has helped me. But I remember when I came back from Provincetown, um, James Williams, that former Google engineer, I went to go and see him in Moscow and he said to me, what you did a digital detox is not the solution to these problems for the same reason that wearing a gas mask is not the solution to air pollution, right? Gas masks might help you. I'm not against people wearing gas mask, but that's not the solution. We've got to go to the thing that's causing these problems and we've got to deal with those causes. And at the moment we're sort of in a position where we're being constantly covered with itching powder and then the people pouring itching powder on us are going you know you might want to learn to meditate and then you wouldn't scratch so much right <laughs> it's like all right yeah i mean i agree i'm in favor of meditation but you should stop pouring itching powder on me you fucker right <laughs> and and i think we're in a a similar Uh, situation right so we've got to do both we've got to do the individual stuff it's important I'm strongly in favor of it I talk about what it is in the book but we've also got to stop these fuckers doing this to us we've got to go to the people who are stealing our focus and reclaim it and there are very practical ways we can do that
1: and surveillance capitalism johan's our leader thank you so much for,
2: uh, for <laughs> i for, decline for, the leadership <laughs> the I'm you, whether like
1: desire. It, Got it, whether whether you like it or not you've got it oh. uh thank you so much for
2: joining me today always oh. a pleasure your book Cheers, stolen Cheers.
1: focus is fantastic and uh i, and I meant to, to say well.
2: all my publishers will tase me well first i want to say thank you so much for engaging so deeply with the book tim it's yes. always such a joy to talk to you. you've got such an intelligent engagement in these things and um it's such a pleasure to you know when you write a book it's like putting a message in a bottle and throwing it into the ocean and I feel talking to you it's like oh someone found my bottle it's really nice um so I meant to say anyone who wants any more information about the book where they can get the audio book the ebook, or the physical book can go to stolenfocusbook.com I meant to read out this stupid blurb which says if you'd like to know what Stephen Fry, Hillary Clinton and lots of other famous <laughs> people said about the book but I can't do that um also you can listen for free to audio of lots of the experts we've talked about um you can read clips about of them talking about these various things so it's stolenfocusbook.com
1: well you can put on the book tim lovejoy says it's great so there you go very oh, important right. important book for me anyway i loved it thank you so much oh, uh,
2: thank you tim what a joy thank you so much cheers